0: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In northeastern Colombia, in the small towns near Venezuela, there lived a man his granddaughter would call Nono. He was a bad husband, a good father, and a curandero, a widely renowned healer. He's the man for whom Ingrid Rojas Contreras's new memoir, The Man Who Could Move Mountains, is named, and his journey, the people and movements he occasioned in life and in death, structured this new memoir. Healing, brutal violence, spiritual sickness, multi-generational stories... Truth, amnesia, ghosts, buried treasure. Ordinary family life gets built from extraordinary things when that's what's all around. We'll talk Colombia, curanderos, culture, and caste. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning by Ingrid Rojas-Contreras, the author of a new memoir, the man who could move clouds. It's a book that's about Colombia, its stories, its families, the violence that shaped them. The people in this memoir know things about each other, the world, the past, the future, other realms, anything they need to survive. And Ingrid herself, living in the United States since her late teens, realizes that they're surviving, as she writes, and then they're surviving the surviving. What is peace for the living or for the dead when there's so much trauma buried and calling to us? And rotating inside this gorgeous memoir, there's Ingrid and there's her mother, mirror images of each other powering the book. To beautiful memoir, the kind that wobbles your view of everyday life, the objects and people around you, can what we see be believed and what is not seen be forgotten? Ingrid joins us here in the studio. Thank you so much. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So there's a tradition in your family that people would greet each other like, well, what did you dream about? Uh, last night so what did you dream about
1: <laughs> <laughs> I had a dream that in my my apartment was full of small white bunnies
0: <laughs> and do you have to interpret every dream or is that just like you can just leave that one be and be like maybe maybe I like bunnies
1: I I think that I try to so there's yeah the, an overwhelm of something mm-hmm. of, but you know but it's a cute animal uh, but an overwhelm of something
0: Interesting. Maybe that's a good sign when you're promoting a book that you're feeling like good overwhelm.
1: Yeah, maybe it is yeah. about that. Being here today, maybe. Yes, right. <laughs>
0: um, so to begin, I also think you should tell us about your grandfather, Nono, and sort of what he was like.
1: Um, yeah, my my grandfather, Nono, uh, was a very charismatic man. Uh, everyone who who knew him, who I talked to, were just kind of deeply entranced by him and he seemed very powerful Um, and he was a community healer and he had uh, like a business at home they lived in Ocaña in Colombia and people would come in with all, all sorts of instabilities so it could be fevers or heartbreak or it could be you know someone was possessed so the range or you know mental instabilities the range of things and then he would through um, plant medicine and through prayer and sometimes through dreams, he would um, help them heal. And people said that he could uh, move clouds.
0: And as you were growing up in Columbus, you didn't move to the states until you were you were almost an adult. How did you see him? How did yourself? Like how did you interpret what he did?
1: I, uh, I, I, I interpreted what he did through my mother because my mother um also became a curandera after him um and i grew up hearing stories about him um and i just i i just really grew up on the the magic in the family so those stories of him uh moving clouds and then there was a time that he called um on the devil to come and he was like mocking him um And people said that there after there was like these, you know, there was like this huge kind of storm that they heard in the family inside the house when this was happening. And they went outside and there was um, footsteps that were printed in the mud um, that were larger than anybody else in the house. So, you know, so I would go to my grandmother's house and those footsteps would be beneath tiles. Um, So I just kind of grew up around... Hearing the stories and then being in the place and seeing kind of like the traces of him in that place. Yeah,
0: you know. So he was a a community healer, curandero, and your mother also took this on. And in the book, there's this real relationship between people's personal histories and their family histories and their health in this way that you know, in the bloodless language of the medical establishment now, I mean, we'd probably call some of those things maybe social determinants of of health. Like, how do you think about going back and forth between the world of, you know, Western medicine in the way that we're thinking about it, like hospitals and, um, and, you know, small molecule medicines and sort of what your family had done as healing. Mm.
1: For, for the people who came to see my grandfather, they were at a point where maybe they were um, turned away by the medical establishment. So, at the point where doctors would say, "We don't know what else to do, or we have done everything that we can think to do um and those were at that point people would often go to my grandfather to my mother, and seek healing from them. I always loved my mother would heal by whispering uh, or like breathing prayers into water, and then he would she would give the water to the person that she was trying to heal. There was something so beautiful to me about that, that you could ingest a liquid and that it could touch this part of you that couldn't be touched by Western medicine. Um, and I i think through, you know, growing up in my house and then seeing the people who came and seeing how they um, got better, you know, the way that they just started to return to our house again and again that I could, I I don't know what it is, but I could see that something was happening for them, um, that they were getting something from, you know, someone caring for them in that way. And I always just felt that that was so um, beautiful. Mm.
0: Your relationship to your mom is also really fascinating in this book, in part because you apparently bear like a really striking physical resemblance, right? Like you would run into people in Colombia that she had known and they would be like, taken with the idea that essentially they were traveling back in time and, and visiting with your mother. What, what was it like for you though, to be a, a mirror, not sort of, you know, the, the next generation?
1: <laughs> um, I, I think that I, I mean, it is a little, I always wanted to be a little different or I wanted to be the original one. And I was always a little upset that she was the original one. <laughs> um, but there's, I, I think as a writer, maybe there's something very interesting about that, that we would be walking in my, in my grandmother's, uh, you know, childhood barrio, and there would be an old man who she didn't know, I didn't know, and he would walk up to us and he would point at me and say, you used to live here. And for me, that, it, it just introduces such a delicious surreality that I just loved um so there there's a part of me that also just really is really enamored by by what happens and then the reactions that we get. Yeah. Cuz it's almost like time is compressed or broken down in that moment. And I could be her and in that moment I am her to this person. Um and I just love
0: that. Yeah. You also share that you both had pretty serious accidents. Your your mother fell down a well and you uh fell off a bike where we're hit by a car. And then you had experienced very, very serious amnesia, right? Do you want to describe what it was like to just wake up not knowing? Well, what did you know when you woke up? What What was yeah. it like?
1: Um, so yeah, I I got doored in in Chicago, and I wasn't wearing a helmet, um, and I hit my head pretty hard. And when I as I rose from the ground, all I knew is that I was. Okay, um, but even more than that, i I wasn't fully aware that I was in a body, so it it I had this this sense of self that wasn't tied down to anything, and it was almost wherever my eye flew that my mind flew with it. Um, and it was this experience of watching the world being made every second because everything was new to me in that second. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would see sunlight and just kind of be, you fall in love with sunlight and just kind of like live in that moment. And then I would see, you know, the the wind and I would and I would then be in that moment. So it was this um, for me, it, it just felt like this incredible happiness to happiness. It just felt so uh, joyful um, and I felt light and airy. And it felt like I was I was connected to the world in a way that I didn't have questions. It was it was um, it was almost like it was all knowing and just nothing to wander about. Since I've I was so connected to everything,
0: and it's interesting that you weren't scared or didn't sort of reach after sort of wait. I I don't know who I am like. I feel like when I hear amnesia stories or when people lose memory loss, sometimes it's like that that disorientation, which for you seems like it was like freeing and beautiful, is actually terrifying and bad. For some- how yeah. did you, do you have you talked to other people who have had am- amnesia? And
1: yeah, i've I've talked to friends who have had amnesia. Um, a friend of mine woke up in a hospital. And part of it is that when she opened her eyes, she was just surrounded by concerned family members. Mm. And I wonder if there is something about seeing someone's face concerned for you that that would immediately introduce fear of something is wrong. Um, but for me, when I just opened my eyes, I was I just saw the the world, and I didn't see anybody who was cueing me into something is wrong. Um, so for me, it just felt like an incredible adventure. And by the point that I realized, oh, I I don't know who I am. I don't know where I was going. I have no idea where I came from. I was also like, how do you, what is, you know, how do you ride a bike? I wasn't like completely aware of, you know, anything, you know, a a lot. Um, And there was something. So it felt like an adventure and it felt like um, something, an opportunity that I was waiting for. 'cause it I think that i've I had always wanted to know like what is at the edge of perception, and that moment for me was kind of opening a door into this is how you can maybe think about that or discover or look into it
0: one kind of fascinating for a writer, you actually find that when you when you have name for for things when you start to name them, then that actually takes away something from the thing itself,
1: yes, yeah, um. It the the moment it, it was just so complicated, but I would really want to name things. Um, and if I didn't remember the name for something, I would just want it to give it a name. Um, and it felt like poetic work. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember seeing like there was a window at some point um, in my apartment and I still had amnesia. And the and the the I had the the curtains were drawn And I named that. It's a condemned window. Um, So, you know, so it felt like poetic, just poetic work. Um, But then the moment that you name something, then it becomes an abstraction and then you're far from the thing itself. And so I did find that language was distancing.
0: We're talking with Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Bay Area based writer, born and raised in Colombia, about her new memoir, The Man Who Could Move Clouds. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break.
2: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure,
3: So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply, not available in all areas, actual speeds vary.
0: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Ingrid Rojas Contreras. Baria-based writer now lives in San Francisco. She's raised in Colombia. Her new memoir, The Man Who Could Move Clouds, is a really, really beautiful book. She's also the author of the novel Fruit of the Drunken Tree and a visiting writer at the University of San Francisco now. We would like to hear from you two. If you're from a place that's experienced violence, major upheaval, and you got out, have you thought about not just surviving, but surviving the surviving? How do you process the kind of before times? in the context of your new life. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. We're also looking for maybe you have a family story or that has really deeply shaped your reality. You can tell us that too. The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Uh, before the break, Ingrid, we were talking about your amnesia and what it felt like to be this kind of blank slate and then have to, like, remember what a blank slate was. Um, And I wanted you to just do uh, read a little bit from the book so people can can hear some of your prose just about as you're starting to kind of put yourself together after the accident, who you are.
1: Um, And I think maybe the other thing that you need to know is that my my mother also had an accident where she had um, amnesia. I am not the same person as I was before my accident nor is my mother since hers. We are both women transformed by the exit and the return. In this way, we alone understand each other. We know what it's like to wake up disassembled and witness, hour by hour, the invention of self. Once, we were empty, pristine, expansive, pliable and open as only the new can be. Then we mourned the slow rigor mortis that made us one person and not another. We bemoaned the groups of thought that surfaced, the tracks our minds insisted running on, catching always at the same places. We regretted the re-emergence of unfortunate personality traits, Mummy's short temper, my self-absorption, Mummy's vanity, my pride. When we returned to our minds, not everything was in its place. Crucial places, pieces were mislaid, important moments misremembered, different conclusions drawn. Cornerstone thoughts lost forever. Mm.
0: That was Ingrid Rojas Contreras reading from her new memoir The Man Who Could Move Clouds. You know I'm, I'm struck by this given that this book has an investment in in the past in history in all of the things that it that it means to sort of be be living in a world that has, you know, gone many generations before you that this moment of amnesia is is an escape from that it's a it's a freedom from that history but does the same thing kind of work for a culture like can could a culture move ahead by just by forgetting that what that's gone before
1: (laughs) um well I think that what I found was that I couldn't as much as I wanted to remain a blank slate was that I couldn't sustain it um I had this you know fantasy that I would go out into a boat and then live without memory and that nobody would ask me questions and I could live as a blank slate. Um, And I very quickly found that that wasn't possible. And memory has a way of introducing itself, especially when you don't want it to. Um, And I think it's the same for the things that we try to forget or want to forget, that there's a way in which those national histories have to be faced and surf you know they surface on their own um and when we do that work of trying to oppress what we know and leave it behind that sometimes it just it does harm it does more harm than than good mm-hmm. um so I don't think that it's it's um it's i think that it's crucial that we look at what are the the places of our History that have been tried to be erased, or what are parts of our culture that have been tried to be erased and claim those back as well,
0: yeah, you know, I kept thinking I was reading this book about kind of the value of ghosts, <laughs> um, and in part it's you know you've written and talked about Americans kind of forgetting the past or trying to forget the past, but it's only some of the people I feel like other people are really deeply invested in kind of learning those things, but here there's not really a way of reckoning with that like you know we've had these sort of the racial reckoning we've had reckonings around gender and gender the history of gendered violence and but in your book ghosts kind of give you something to do with the past
1: mhm yeah um there's yeah i i've been thinking a lot about ghosts and what they can offer us i know that you know being in the in the united states when we talk about ghosts there is this kind of goofy quality to it um And I know that you know from Colombia that we when you think about your lineage or you think about you know what context do you exist in or what place are you inhabiting, um, and we start to think about ghosts, how that 's another word for thinking about history, and it 's more of a literal connection to history, so I can you know if if I think about things that my grandfather did or my great grandfathers did um and i introduced the word ghost into that so i think about what what are we being haunted by or what actions did they take that i have to now in my lifetime meet in some way then it, it 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 allows for for a sense of responsibility and responding to the past um as if it belonged to us you know and i think when we when we don't have that framework and we you know we think that we are disconnected from what came before us, that it also means that we, um, you know, we negate that part of our responsibility that we have, and it makes it so that we we can't move forward as much.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I want to talk a little bit about your sense of story and the way that you learn to sort of deliver truth within storytelling. Um, and your your mother, as she was working with people initially trying to heal them, she would just sort of dump the truth on them. What did, what did you learn from her about how you have to wrap the truth so that people can actually find it themselves and, and believe it?
2: Yeah, she
1: she told me this story about how she was, you know, early on when she was a curandera and she would use um, tarot cards to give people readings and give them answers Um. It would be, you know, someone would be like, "Is my husband cheating on me?" And she would deal the cards, and she would be like, "Yes," you know. <laughs> and that would be the end of it, um, and that person would never return, um, just because there is there is something violent to when we just reveal the truth in that way, mm. um, and how it just makes it very hard to to hear and listen to. So the thing that she learned. Uh, through her through her fortune telling and through um, trying to help people is that if you disguise the truth in a story or you disguise it in a metaphor and, or a ritual that um, a person can be helped more by that than if you said it directly mm-hmm. as a writer I always thought that that was the best writing advice that I've ever heard how you know there's, there's some truths that have to be said and kind of, uh, yeah, you know, supported in a specific way. Uh, and if we set them directly, then everything kind of falls apart.
0: Mm. You also have another line that you attribute to your mother that she speaks to. She says, sometimes when you speak two truths, it means forgiveness. I've been thinking about that line since I read it. I mean, in in the context of the book, it was that her father was a good father to her, but a bad husband to her mother. Do you find yourself thinking about that two truths as forgiveness for yourself or your Colombia or the US? Like do you do you find yeah, yourself with the, I
1: kind of- Constantly, constantly. I I feel um that I'm I'm constantly kind of drawing um wisdom from that line. Um I s I I do feel that um it's easy to be upset at someone for something that they did. And when we Don't look at the whole of that person that it can be a disservice to ourselves and to them. Um, And yeah, there's something about just holding the complication of a person and just holding the accumulation of all the things that they've done in their lives and then trying to hold that together. um, That feels to me maybe the kindest thing that you can do Um, and not just for them, but for yourself as well.
0: You know, there's a startling and, and troubling instance of this in the book, too, with Nono, where he more or less tries to kill your grandmother. Um, how what role do you feel like the supernatural interpretation that that event was given played in sort of allowing amends to be made or healing to occur?
1: Yeah, Um So they, my grand, my grandparents had a very kind of, um, tempestuous relationship and it, they were, my grandmother was just completely in love with him. Um, and he, he, every year he would leave for about six months and he would go on these long trips and he would go and visit with tribes and other curanderos and other, his other women that he had. And then he would come back after a long time. Um, And the way that he came back was also very enchanting because he would come back with all of these animals that he picked up along the way. So he would bring back uh, monkeys or he, one time he brought back an anaconda. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, so it it was, you know, you can see how you can be very kind of upset at him and also very enchanted with him at the same time. Um, And my grandmother's way of trying to keep him at home was to get pregnant um, and so she she would constantly tr- be trying to get pregnant and then he would leave her and then he would come back and then there would be a new baby and then she would try to get pregnant and he would leave. Um, so one time when he left, um, my grandmother was pregnant with, with my mother and my grandfather said that he heard spirits tell him that there was about to be a baby and that this baby was evil and it was going to, you know, quote-unquote, I'm quoting from my grandfather, quoting the ghosts that he heard, he, uh, this baby was going to end everyone. Um, So he decided to come back, and he got drunk, and then he chased my grandmother around with a machete, um, and my grandmother had just given birth to my mother. Um, when I talked to my mother about this incident, She always says that he was, that that she felt that, that at that point he was possessed. Um, and so she, yeah, as much as I try to push for, but how did you feel about this? She always says like, well, he was, he was possessed. He wasn't himself. Mm -hmm. Um, but she did use that little bit of knowledge every time that he, she wanted something from him. Um, one of the things that she wanted was for him to bring back, uh, like a baby tiger and so she kept being like well you tried to kill me so you need to <laughs> so you, you have to bring me a baby tiger back
0: wow we're talking with Ingrid Rojas Contreras a San Francisco writer raised in Bogota Colombia about her new memoir the man who could move clouds um, if you're from a place that's experienced violence major upheaval you got out have you thought about not just sort of surviving and, and moving, but surviving that surviving, like thriving in, the, in a new place? You can give us a call. The number's 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, uh, or you can email forum at kqed.org. You know, in this book, everyday violence of men just shapes so much of what happens. Um, no nos violence, just the kind of casual violence of men with guns on a road, the violence of colonization, cartel violence. And that violence really places a lot of limits on what women can do and the men themselves kind of get distorted into these grotesque shapes. How have you thought about that in the context of your kind of bi-national <laughs> status now? Like the, the violence there... And the violence here, where we do know so much of, uh, of the violence that occurs, is, is perpetrated by men in the U.S. as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that really moved me as a as a young girl was seeing the women in my family and seeing also women that came to see my mother who were in very difficult situations because they were in abusive relationships. which just very scary relationships. Um, and I was always very moved by how they would kind of band together and the ways that they would be um, opening toward like the feeling of what had happened to them and how that was a form of strength for them, Um, you know, being able to hold it um, and being able to kind of still uh, be a human being in the world. I, you know, I feel like that's a, that's a very particular strength to to the women that I grew up with um, seeing Um, and I, I, you know, the, the thing that I keep coming back to is just maybe that men need to fix themselves. (laughs) Um, and it's, it's just like a very, you, you know, the fact that we can talk about men's violence throughout the world, um, there is something definitely there for, you know, for, for every man to look at and, and work on.
0: Yeah, you have a, a line, actually talking about your own father, I think, right, that your mother's reflecting that he was a man like all men she knew, threatened by her and interested in control. And also your father goes through a transformation, though, too, right? Yes. And and that yeah. seems like it's an important part of the book.
1: Yeah. Um, he When they met, he was a very controlling uh, man. And one of the stories that my mother told me is that he uh would lock her into the apartment before he left for work um and then when he con- he would come back he would say uh or she would she would ask him like why did you lock me in and he would say the door is unlocked and he would try to show her that it had been unlocked the whole time um and she started to sneak out um and uh she would whistle at the window and this neighbor would come with a ladder and she would sneak out the window, and then her plan was to go dancing in these um like um, salsa places in the day that was by the place where he worked, trying to start rumors so that his you know potentially his friends his coworkers that are walking by would see her dancing with somebody and then tell him um and that he would have to question whether he had locked the door or not, so she was trying to just reverse. <laughs> like gaslight him and it worked because at some point he just came back and he was like the door isn't working and he changed the locks um and then he never did that again but you know so that that was you know when they were together um and I think at that point I I wasn't born yet I wasn't born yet um but yeah but when I was a little girl my dad was a completely different person so he would he would do like the cooking for us he was just like the most generous um it was always what we wanted to do um and he just he was just when he, when she would tell me stories about him earlier in their relationships i just couldn't even recognize that person anymore um and you know it was it was just like such an amazing transformation mm-hmm.
0: One uh, listener writes in to say, uh, I love what you said about ghosts. I grew up in a Mexican family and heard so many stories about encounters with ghosts. A lot of the stories were about an ancestor needing something to be resolved. I was so frightened, but also fascinated by the idea of being able to fix something for someone Mm. after death. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. After the break, we're talking with Ingrid Rojas Contreras, a Bay Area based writer who was born in Colombia, now lives here in San Francisco. New memoir is The Man Who Could Move Clouds. She's also author of the novel Fruit of the Drunken Tree and a visiting writer at the University of San Francisco, where I think you start teaching like any day now, right? Yeah, like
1: the 20th or something.
0: (laughs) That's great. Um, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more forum. We'll be talking with Ingrid. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Ingrid Rojas-Contreras about her new memoir, The Man Who Could Move Clouds. So one of the fascinating episodes in this book is you receive a message from the beyond, I guess. I'm not sure exactly how to put it, that that your grandfather needs something to happen. Can you tell us a little bit about this episode?
1: Yeah, so... Uh what happened was that there was one week where my mother and then two of my aunts all had the same dream independently of each other. And they, in that week, they just called each other to tell each other, this is what I dreamt. And then the other person would be like, wait, I just had the same dream. So the dream was that my grandfather appeared to them, to each of them, and said, I want my remains to be disinterred because it happened three times we we felt that we absolutely had to do it or this was you know it there couldn't be a clearer message for us to go and do it and immediately we 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 started to talk about you know like how do you disinter a person or like what does it involve or like do you ask the cemetery like what is you know what's happening and we went from that to just borrowing money buying tickets going to columbia <laughs> To go and and disinter um, my grandfather. Oh
0: my gosh! And so, well, well tell us what happened. What do you? Uh, how do you do it? I, I mean, yeah.
1: you, well, so we were there, and then uh, my aunt was was looking into it, and she. I think all of us were a little bit worried about what what was happening at the grave or what could be happening there. And one of my aunts stopped by to check on it, and she discovered that people had been l- leaving little papers with requests or you know requests for miracles and they would kind of stick them into the grass of the grave um and there would be there were candles that were left um and this is not unheard of in Colombia but his grave had become a miraculous grave um which happens from time to time in Colombia um and so we we started to think that maybe this was the reason why that one of the things that he said before passing was that he didn't want any requests for miracles anymore, that he had just kind of worked his whole life trying to heal people and help people and that he wanted to rest. So we we started to feel that maybe this was why. Um, and, yeah, we had to, you know, gather money, you know, talk to the cemetery Um,
0: (laughs) My gosh. And when you actually execute this plan, you go and his remains are cremated and, and you know, it's the end of the book. So I don't want to totally give it away here. Do you feel like, you know, that was some years ago. Do you feel like something changed for you? Like you had gone and you had done this work for an ancestor. How do you think it changed your life?
1: Mm. I... I feel that I had to think about what it is to receive someone's prayers in that way. I had to think about uh, my grandfather and what it means to be the person who heals other people, or to be the person that other people go to when they feel lost or they feel that at, they're at the end of, you know, the, the answers that they know how to get. Um, and I there was something about you know the the moment when his his, his remains were unearthed, and um, there were the the grave diggers were were carrying like his remains to this tray. Um, little pieces of paper would be carried to that tray too, but they were like blackened and they were. I couldn't you know read them anymore, but those were wishes that he had been buried with. Um, and I I think for me, I just started to think about all of the unanswered prayers um and what it means to you know come from someone who who is that person um and i i think that the way that it maybe the way that it that it changed me was just thinking about um you know stories can be that way a little bit if you if you if you are writing stories how sometimes there they can be a form of an unanswered prayer in some way like either that you're casting or that you're caring for someone or that you're just kind of imagining and crafting together.
0: Mm. You know, Max asks, uh, "Can Ingrid speak more about how to make amends for decisions that your ancestors made?"
1: Mm. Um. Well, I, you know, there's so if we use the framework of ghosts, and and we're we're asking, what are the ghosts that are following us, or like what is haunting our lineage? Um, what is that ghost asking for, what is it demanding, what does it want? Um, I think in that question, then you can start to see what you might need to be, you know, to do. What What if, um, you know, we looked into the specific names of people that were harmed in our lineage, or what if uh, we went to the places where things happened and we did some kind of offering or we made it our, you know, one of the things that we can do in our lives is to kind of um, seek out how to, you know, do reverse work or how to then support people, um, you know, the people who our ancestors might have harmed.
0: Mm. You know, Ash uh, writes in from Instagram uh, to share an amnesia experience. She says in 2009, I was run over by a drunk driver while on my bike. In the bike lane, the driver left me on the road to die. I suffered a serious traumatic brain injury and had multiple strokes afterwards. I have no memory of the accident, and making memories since the accident is spotty. I had to relearn how to walk and talk and how to think. If I wanted to build a life after a traumatic brain injury, I had to let go of the ghosts that haunted me, and I had to forgive the man who left me to die Mm. on the side of the road. After I learned to walk, I started running. I have left side paralysis. I'm a para-athlete, an ultra marathon runner, and after 13 years off my bike, I started racing again. During the pandemic, I realized I can't let the PTSD and fears of what happened to me stop me from doing what I truly love to do. I'm not as strong as I was before the accident, but I had to stop comparing myself to who I was or thought I would be. Relearning how to live after a traumatic brain injury is both a blessing and a curse. I've had an amazing transformation.
1: That is so inspiring and beautiful.
0: I love that. You know, there's also it, it's interesting that not unlike in in your own experience, like there It's not as if the the trauma goes away, but it just has to be sort of dealt with in in new ways or or in ways that you haven't found yet. And one of the fascinating passages of this book, or just kind of chapter sections, is where you're, you and your sister are kind of struggling with what here we might call mental health. You know, you're kind of moving through mental health, but which your mother calls spiritual sickness. And you're kind of mm-hmm. going back and forth. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's like to have a curandeta for a mother while you're sort of experiencing, you know, an anxiety disorder?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, I think, well, both my, you know, my sister and I grew up in just such as, you know, scary circumstances because there were car bombs going off. Um, and we we were nearly kidnapped or we were kidnapped and then let go and our father was kidnapped. Um, and we were just we just grew up on fear. We just grew up on fear. Um, by the time that we came to the US, I think that something happens once you start to feel that you're in a safe environment where all those experiences start to catch up to you and they just emerge in, in this way and yeah, for me it was a an anxiety disorder, and then for my sister it was a a very serious eating disorder um so our mother would be constantly try, you know calling it the the spiritual th- sickness um and for my sister she would she would talk about it as like the the eating disorder ghost or sometimes like the hunger ghost um and she would ask you know like what where did you pick up this ghost or like where does this ghost live um and I started to tell her that I that I felt that both of these ghosts we picked up by leaving and by crossing the border, um, and so I told her that I that I felt that these ghosts live in in spaces of transition. Um, there's something about that conversation that that feels somehow deeper than if I am talking um, to a therapist and we're talking about. You know how here here's how you deal with anxiety, or here are the reasons why you have anxiety, right? So it it's just it feels, for myself, I felt that I've I've really um, benefited from having both worldviews, um, and I yeah I felt that I needed both of them in order to to kind of have a hand get a handle on it um, and be able to understand. Um, this idea of it's not about um, healing or getting better as in returning to a state where nothing is wrong, but it's about uh, accepting the the changes that have, have happened in me or the things that have marked me that have made me who I am now and grow around them or figure out how I can carry them and, and you know, live with them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that I, in order to reach to that point, I've, I really needed both things. Mm.
0: You know, you mentioned the context of, of your life, which was a lot of conflict uh, in Colombia. And we actually have a, we have a passage that you wrote. Could you maybe read that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. We call our perpetual state
1: of war the conflict, and nobody really agrees on when it began. The government starts to count 57 years ago, when it began its war against communist allied people. Other people maintain it began 73 years ago, with a civil war previous to the current one and the magnacide that caused it the killing of Jorge Ilyaser Gaitan, a presidential candidate on whom the poor and oppressed had laid their hopes. It wasn't our first magnacide. By then, the assassination of our political leaders was so common that we had already invented a word for this type of murder. Others believe the conflict began 100 years ago with the violent skirmishes between dispossessed farmers and landowners in the coffee-growing regions of Colombia that led to the side, that led to the civil war previous to the past one, that led to the current war.
0: Mm. I mean, Just that rolling sentence at the end of just like this, this endless billiard balls of, of violence, I... Do you now have hope that Colombia is in a different place? That's in a better place, or that it, or that it could be in the future? Or do you just see billiard ball, billiard ball, violence, violence, violence?
1: I will say that for the first time in my adult life, I've, I have hope, uh, and I, yeah, I didn't. I remember the, the point when the. When FARC um, put their weapons down, and there was this whole um, kind of like national gesture of everyone was wearing white, and the 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 bullets were were melted down, and statues were made from the bullets, and it was just you know this very kind of hopeful moment. And I didn't feel it then because I what's happened before is that uh, you know a guerrilla group puts their weapons down, and then neo guerrillas form because you you know it's like a Vacuum of power, and then something is going to feel it fill it. I feel that this time feels different to me, um so I feel a lot of hope that maybe we are in a in a different place
0: hmm. And what gives you that hope?
1: um I think our our leaders um especially like the vice president Francia Marquez um i'm very just i that just feels um like change to me. Um, That she's uh, a black woman, that she is an activist, um, you know, that she's she's worked with communities and has done a lot um, on the ground, that she doesn't come from any of the rich families, that she used to be a maid, you know, all of these things. And now she's vice president to me. That's the part of the story that feels very different, and it it does feel like the start of something else.
0: Yeah, it's also you know there's a connection quite directly between your book and the the president of Colombia, who's with with Marquez uh, Gustavo Petro, because he was an M nineteen guerrilla fighter, and in the book, your mother meets an old boyfriend who also was an M nineteen guerrilla fighter. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of that weaving together for you of that that deeply personal side with this geopolitical maneuvering.
1: Yeah. Um I I I every time that I go to Colombia I just I notice that the the politics and the violence just live in every interaction that you have because everybody has been touched by the violence in some way or another. So my mother and I were meeting one of her old boyfriends And it was this thing, you know, that we were talking about before where he saw me and he immediately felt that I was my mother, you know, age 15 when they were in love. Um, And so there was just this bizarre tenor over our whole time together. And we went out to dinner Um, and he he told me that he had gone to um, a school in in Bukaramanga that's notorious for. Um, graduating communists, and so I asked him if he was a communist um, and by the way that he answered, I just knew that he was that he was in a in a group and um, he slowly started to talk about it and um, told me that he was in the M19 but meaning to tell me the story about being in love with my mother, but somehow the two being in love with my mother and then uh, feeling um that the injustice was such that 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 was what kind of um broke the the relationship for him because one of he, they were going to the same school and one of their classmates was shot by the police um and he said that that bullet was meant for him um and at that point he was um involved with the M19 which I will say, like, is was one of the guerrilla groups that you know included a priest and they, a lot of college professors um, and poets and artists. Um, so it was, so it was the the guerrilla group that was um, the most metaphorical. So they would just do all of these metaphorical actions, and one of the actions was stealing the the sword of um, Simón Bolívar, and that was like one of their guerrilla actions. Um, And yeah, so I so I just kind of um, the you know, we we just couldn't get um, away from the violence almost like he just wanted to talk to me about my mother. And then it just kind of became my relationship with your mother was severed because of what we were living at the time. And this is what we were living at the time.
0: Right. I mean, it's a a certain kind of privilege that you could have your love in a bubble disconnected from. You know, all these realities of, of the world. You know, your mother and your family seem like they have always placed a value on having these truths. And I want to just finish with, you know, what do you think the hardest truths to, to tell people through your writing are?
1: The hardest truths to tell people? Yeah. Mm. Um. I I think maybe for everyone and for myself, too, like in this memoir, it was just this action of trying to bear witness to myself and trying to bear witness to the parts of myself that I would rather not, you know, bear witness to or the parts of my history that are, you know, too painful or too harmful. And I would just rather leave them behind Um, for me looking back. Uh, opened up so much. And I think for everyone, um, the things that you want to leave behind uh, are probably the things that you have to um, gather back to yourself and actually look at.
0: We have been talking with Ingrid Rojas Contreras about her new beautiful, beautiful memoir. It's called The Man Who Could Move Clouds. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim.
3: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons
2: Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home,
3: Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
0: Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair.